0: Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse I am Jesse and I am Josh and this is a podcast about burning the, wait you saving can- the best. <laughs> saving the best and burning the rest. Excellent. Man, we are, how are... we still rusty.
1: You'd think we'd be like back in the zone. Maybe it's this fortnightly release schedule. We're just not, not the
0: same. Maybe we need to do it more. Maybe we need to burn ourselves out again. <laughs> <laughs> Damn.
1: <laughs> too real. Too real. <laughs> hey, some people say that burnout is the millennial rite of passage. <laughs>
0: you need to be able to have something to tell your kids like when they're older like you guys don't know what it's like i was a millennial in the early 2010s you'll never know
1: we all burnt out (laughs) anyway yes hey it is good to be with you today we are recording from a secret location Again, you'll why, do you
0: always, never. why do you always say it's a secret location? Because it's top secret. Okay, <laughs> if anybody wants to take any guesses about where we're actually recording from, I'll take guesses. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Great. We, maybe we can run a competition. I don't think it's going to be that difficult for people who know us. There's a fair few people who listen to us, who know us, who are in the proximity of the area, the unspecified secret area.
1: Yeah, people who've even just walked in and said hello this morning.
0: Yes. Anyway. Top secret.
1: Top secret location. ta we are checking out
0: our survey because we love surveys they're helpful. Would so you like... like to do a survey?
1: <laughs> no this is genu- genuinely good. This is a, I don't know this was a really interesting survey and I guess it's data
0: and trends about the church in the last 20 years. Yes, is a time frame. So if you want to you can look this up yourself and follow along. We are going to be talking about 20 years of congregational change, the 2020 Faith Communities Today Overview by Faith Communities Today. Nice. This isn't sponsored by them.
1: It sounds like it is, but it's not. We just really like the survey and the data. So we just thought it'd be interesting to talk yeah. about. reason we we're talking about data and surveys and this particular overview. is because I think a lot of people have misconceptions about church. Yeah. And that's what we kind of work on here with Burn the Haystack. Burning Haystacks. And part of that is, I think, misconceptions about church, its functionality, the trends. And this is why this data is pretty helpful. There's three major categories of trends.
0: Jesse, do you want to outline those for the good people listening? So the three main categories that we're going to be talking about this morning is going to be trends that raise concerns and present challenges for flourishing, then trends that offer hope and then possibilities for revitalization. And so if you are if you have the notes there, that's just in the table of contents and there's a bunch of subheadings that I won't mention now, but those are going to be the three areas of discussion this morning. So the trends that of concern, the ones that offer hope, and then where to from here. We always like to get practical on this podcast and so that's what we're going to finish with. And I should also note as we get into this, if you are reading the, the notes there, you'll see that this is a survey of mostly U.S., American religious institutions, churches, and things like that. I think it's all U.S. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. you're right. But I think what is interesting in this, it, even for those of us living here in the South Pacific, is the fact that so much of what we do and say and the way that our churches down here do is very much affected by what happens in the U S. So I think it's gonna be relevant to us, even if you're not American.
1: Yeah. And I think like a lot of these trends are true here. We just don't have the data. Not maybe not exactly the same, but I still, I would probably think a lot of these trends are very similar here. Yeah. And what else is interesting about this, just a small little interesting tidbit is that the it's faith communities, So it's not actually just churches. Yeah. It also includes other faith communities. Though they are like quite a small minority in this survey. But yeah, it's got I think some like mosques and synagogues and Yeah. So anyway, I just found that pretty interesting. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. We should we just should we just jump into it, Jesse? Yeah, sure, why not? Jump on in. Okay. So firstly, let's start with trends that raise concerns and present challenges for flourishing. <laughs> such a Flourishing.
0: (laughs) It's a very churchy language. (laughs) Okay. was it flourish like a women's conference or something? If it's not, it should be. Okay.
1: All right, cool. There's a little snapshot of the congregational landscape. Probably
0: a sensible place to start. So let's have a peruse, shall we? Let's peruse. I I like that word. That's a good one. So what we've got is we've got two decades of data here. We started in the year 2000, and we've ended in the year 2020. And I should just quickly point out that they point out, I should point out that they point out. Uh, I'm going to point out that you're pointing out that they point out. Indeed. That in the study, they have mentioned the fact that there's a pandemic going on, but they're actually measuring data primarily prior pandemic with that little part at the end 2020. Not taking, I guess, center stage, but affecting the trajectory of the data from the 20 years beforehand. And there's a few things that they've found, and you can find this in the summary as well as the executive summary right at the front. And it's saying that prior to the pandemic, many congregations were getting, were small and getting smaller, which I think is a reality that. If you're in the Seventh-day Adventist church, you can probably attest to. Smaller congregations tend to get smaller over time, especially rural churches. Interestingly, the largest ones keep getting larger. So there seems to be, in some cases, a gravitational pull toward larger congregations. And I'm not sure that they've made a exactly, whether it's correlative or causative, from smaller congregations getting smaller larger congregations getting larger but i think there's certainly maybe some indication that there are people going migrating from smaller congregations to larger congregations yeah
1: and i think it probably also has to do with and they mentioned this in the survey people moving from smaller towns into cities like more people are congregating in these bigger cities and some smaller towns are getting smaller so yeah. Anyway, there's probably a little bit of a little bit of the trend being affected there. Yeah, and in in this survey, only so about a third of the congregations measured are actually growing and mm. considered spiritually vital.
0: So two thirds are not growing, and not spiritually vital.
1: I guess so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And they, some
1: could just be plateaued, like staying the yep. same, and some are declining. Yeah. I don't. I can't remember the exact percentage of what's growing. Anyway, but. So yeah, there's, and it actually says that there's different advantages for each size grouping, which I found pretty interesting. And I think we'll talk a little bit about that, how each size congregation has its own strengths and weaknesses, which I don't think we talk about a lot. So I think it will be interesting. I know we did an episode way back called Big Church vs. Small Church, Mm. and we talked a bit about it then, but these are different points to
0: what we mentioned in that episode. In 2020, so this is going back a few years, but I think it's, I shouldn't say that it's possibly representative of today. Because of the pandemic, I think that's probably going to be a theme of, this is all the stuff that's happened before the pandemic. Mm. This is the stuff that was happening when we were having the pandemic. But now that we're moving out of pandemic land, I shouldn't assume that the data is the same, but I don't know what else to go off.
1: Yeah. They're going to keep doing this survey that I think we're redoing it this year. Okay. Oh, updating it this year and in 2025. Okay. And it says at the end of the study. Sure. We maybe will, if
0: we're still doing the podcast, then who knows? We'll revisit this and we can actually see where the trends go. Yeah. So in 2020, then they estimate that there are between 350,000 and 375,000 congregations of all faith traditions within the nation of America. So, yeah, that is a lot. And interestingly, they also note that. Of these faith communities, 70% have 100 or fewer weekly attendees. So there are a lot of churches and there's a lot of faith communities. And of those faith communities, the vast majority of them are very small. But (laughs) what's interesting is that more people, like, so
1: out of that 375,000 congregations, roughly... 70% 70% of all attendees attend the like congregations of 250 or more. So you've got these like less than 100 person faith communities and there's 70% of the data are those, but yeah. then 70% of the people in that same data <laughs> attend the tiny little minority of 250 congregations or yeah, more.
0: which only make up 10% of all churches. Yeah. Which is I was going to say it's crazy, but if you think about it for more than two seconds, it makes sense. Yeah, maybe. I think, well, okay, let's think about the landscape of American church for a moment. And this is true in Australia as well. Of the small amount of churches that have vast amounts of people, the practices of those churches tend to more closely resemble, I would say, larger corporations than they do Grassroots Hmm. faith communities of people. Yeah. In the sense that they have definitive acquisition models for growing congregations, for opening new branches, for absorbing other faraway congregations into their own fold, things like that. Yeah. And so I think it's like, a snowball effect when i think of the big boys in the church world in faith community world i see keep saying faith community world i don't see this happening in jewish communities in muslim communities I maybe mean, the vast is.
1: majority of this data is churches so yeah. i think we can say churches okay yeah and it would it still makes sense
0: sure. yeah. and obviously the data does say faith communities but yeah yeah anyway if, if somebody wants to correct us and tell us about other faith communities that operate on this level. I'd really be interested to know about it, but I'm not aware of any.
1: Yeah. No, that's fair. I just find it interesting that f- only 14% of all weekly attendees attend these like smaller communities of hundred or less. Yeah. I think up to this point, maybe it's just me, but I just assumed that most Christians, like when you think of, if you think of America, if mm. you think of the entire Christian landscape, I just assumed most went to smaller faith community, like yeah. smaller churches.
0: I mean, you've got a geographically f- quite large
1: country. That's why I thought like you go through that whole like Midwest or whatever. And I don't know, even in like big cities and stuff, I just assumed there'd be heaps of little tiny churches that yeah. would be a part of.
0: I think I the, the landscape is a little bit different in the United States because you have lots, you do have lots of little towns here, there and everywhere. But I think, the difference is that whereas in Australia you might have, let's take, I don't know, a town like Dubbo or Tamworth, regional New South Wales, I think they have maybe between 50 and 100,000-ish people living in them. I'm not sure exactly. Check. Yeah, yeah. yeah, check. So like we're talking about mid-sized towns, like fairly significant towns. You're not going to find that many churches there that have more than 250 attendees you might have. Yeah. Okay, Dubbo's
1: population is estimated to be 37,000.
0: Okay, okay. I'm way off. Tiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Tamworth, <laughs> might, Tamworth might be a bit more. Tamworth, yeah, it's the country home of the country music
0: festival. Uh, what a, an iconic town. 64,000. Okay, sure. Yeah, okay. Okay. okay, so that kind of... Tamworth, let's take Tamworth for an example. Yep. So you will have Presbyterian churches. You might have some Pentecostal churches. You may have one or two SDA churches. Mm-hmm. I know I remember there being one there, but I don't know if there's more than one. Those towns are going to have some... A lot of smaller churches, and you might have one church that's like the one big church in town. I remember when we lived in Palmy, there was like the one big Pentecostal church. But even by comparison to everybody else, it was pretty small. And Mm. there was like a competition between a few other Pentecostal churches that were trying to Mm. all be aspirationally big. Yeah, I think there are actually like two or three that I would have considered big. Okay. But, but then yeah. you take something like, let's say Life Church, which is very popular and very, I guess, successful in the Midwest mm-hmm. of the US. And you have a lot of these smaller towns that then have 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 people attending them. It just is a completely different world. Mm-hmm. And I think what the success of a lot of these big, quote unquote, franchise model churches is down to is the fact that they have a really good way of amalgamating and absorbing smaller congregations into them to inflate, perhaps somewhat artificially, the number of people that are attending that particular church.
1: Interesting. Yeah, interesting perspective. Yeah, I think I remember in talking to people in Newcastle who went to a pretty big church, and I remember when a particular church started a new congregation (laughs) in Newcastle, I spoke to people who went to that church that was already there, and they said half of their people just left and went to this new, yeah. quote unquote, franchise church. And I was like, man, that must have that must have sucked. Yeah. and it feels like you're just taking people from other church. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure, like uh, maybe, like they needed a new church or whatever. If I was going to look at it optimistically, like maybe they just needed a new community, and that's the kind of community they wanted. Because I guess the thing is about those big churches, they have a culture already established. They have. Processes and procedures already established and some people just need that Yeah, it's helpful. So
0: I I don't even know if it's necessarily a bad thing. I think when you're looking for a job and you have the option between going to work at a mega corporation versus a startup or a mid-sized business, sure, there are certain advantages to going to a mid-sized business. Maybe you might advance through the company structure more quickly but there's less benefits potentially. There's less room to grow. There's certain disadvantages versus going to a, an enormous company that has billions of dollars in revenue. Mm. But I think the same thing is true in terms of there being benef- pros and cons either way. I just think that some people get starry-eyed about big churches and I don't blame them. I'm not mm. like saying that in judgmental way, whenever I've gone to big churches, I have had similar experiences just going, wow, this is quite a production. This is yeah. the volunteers and the pyrotechnics and the systems. It's Pyrotechnics.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's- it does happen, but not as common. When yeah. I mean,
0: you compare it to what I'm used to every week, it's quite, yeah, some of these churches are quite significant. Anyway. Yep. Shall we move on to the perhaps some of the other stats and then we can talk about some of the trends that are concerning.
1: Okay. There's this cool little graph and it's like a glimpse of 2020 congregational characteristics. And it's just got a bunch of like little bits of data laid out, which some of it's pretty interesting. Some of it we're probably just going to skip over, but you might find it interesting. So if you want to check it out. So the average (laughs) attendance, weekly attendance, also the median, I need to get better at that. The median (laughs) weekly attendance of these congregations is 65 people.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah. Which is interesting because the median seating capacity for these churches is 200. Yeah. So these churches are about a quarter full.
1: Yes, that's the median. Heaps of churches with big buildings and empty seats.
0: Which is, I think, probably a statistic that most people are going to be listening to and going, yep, sounds about right. Yeah,
1: that sounds like my church. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess
1: that's, here's a positive of it. They've got room. They've got room to bring people. Uh, the old positive Josh coming <laughs> back. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, go, okay. on, mate. Good uh, on you. Yeah. The median year that these churches were founded, or faith communities, is 1950. So established, yeah. right? 56% of their participants are female. Mm. So coming back to an episode we did a couple of episodes ago about men, I guess we are pro- perhaps struggling to reach... Men yep. reach and retain men because, yeah, on average, we have more females in our churches. Yep. Yeah. I found it interesting as well that 41% are college graduates hmm. because I think I read on another page that the average, like the population average in America of college graduates, oh yeah, is 35%. Oh,
0: so there's a higher than average representation of educated people within the average church. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
1: So yeah, average participants are more likely to be a college graduate than the national population.
0: Yeah, wow. Yeah, I found that pretty interesting. Which I guess in some ways shouldn't be surprising, given that Christianity has, Christians were the first ones to start universities. Hmm. And yet, on the other hand, there has been a growing sentiment of anti-intellectualism within greater Christianity for about 100 years now, following the rise of the fundamentalist movement in the early, was it? 1910s, 1920s. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm not as clued in to that, but I found it interesting. I remember some data coming out a while ago, and I don't know how like mm. how well the study was done, but I remember somebody saying, oh, I don't know, I saw this on Instagram, so maybe I shouldn't quote this, but <laughs> <laughs> that Christians are more likely to have a lower IQ or something. Interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I think IQ it, is such a bizarre uh, scale for intelligence. I don't is. think it's that. Yeah, I don't think it's the be all and end all. No,
1: no. I found the worship data really interesting. Okay, so twenty four percent would describe their worship as innovative.
0: What does that mean?
1: (laughs) I don't know. That's the yeah. I just found it's like only a quarter of them found their worship innovative.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So seventy five percent felt it was maybe just the same thing or not making any. Yeah. Sure. 31% described it as contemporary. Okay. 77% thought provoking and 77% informal.
0: I'm surprised that there's no statistic for reverent or solemn or traditional. Yeah. Maybe that's not what they were trying to aim for, like in terms of measuring those sorts of, Data. I'm trying to find if there's anything in the actual body text that speaks to that. I'm struggling to see. Okay, here we go. When asked to describe their worship, a large majority of congregants said their services assess their services as reverent. Here we go. 64% is on page eight and thought-provoking 77%. Okay, so that's statistics on the graph. A large percentage of faith communities placed significant emphasis on regular worship attendance, and most agree 49% or strongly agree 33% that their worship was spiritually vital and alive. I don't know. Yeah, wait. Agreed and strongly agreed. So 49% and 33%, 82% total. Here's what I found interesting about their worship stats,
1: right? 60% of congregational services never use an electric guitar and nearly 50% never use an organ. Yet, 31% report that contemporary describes their worship very well. I don't know if contemporary, like someone could have just an organ and yet still be describing their church as contemporary or never use an electric guitar and still describe it as contemporary. Mm. And I think maybe it comes down to what do we think when we think of that word or what do we think of innovative?
0: Yeah, I do like that. You know what? I do like the way that they use the word innovative now because... I guess because, I mean, there's such a divide between traditional and contemporary worship. And of course they do mention that as a metric here, but to use the word innovative, it's a much more, I guess, it feels a much more benign word to me, but it also is benign in a positive way rather than just being a meh way. Because I think that most people probably, I'm thinking very positively right now trying to. Yeah, look at you. I'm so proud. I think I would think that most people would say, I want my church service to be innovative. Mm. But they might think of what that means differently.
1: Yeah. I would agree. I think even in when I've served in traditional churches, they want innovation. Yeah. They just want innovation in a certain
0: direction, maybe. Yeah.
1: And I think that would be true of all congregations. Yeah.
0: Know? The other thing that I think probably is most interesting for me is leadership yes because very selfishly we are church pastors and so that's all we want to think about so the median age of the church leader do you guys have any guesses as to what you think the median age for a church leader is if you guessed 57 years old you'd be correct well done Whoever guessed that? I'm sure one of you did. (laughs) I'm sure some people will be like really cheeky and say 73, (laughs) 87. (laughs) I still think that 57 is by and large a worrying statistic personally. And that's not to put any shade on any of our elders and wise leaders, those who have served in church ministry for a while. I think that it's interesting and potentially worrying Because of the retention rate within Christianity. So the vast majority of these leaders are male. So it's 90%. And they are also Caucasian, 85%.
1: Yeah. Which is pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. About the... So only 10% being female drives me a little bit insane because I want like way more like female pastors, but oh, yeah. they do break it down a little bit. There is a paragraph I feel like I should read on that. Cool. Um, so the fact that just 10% of clergy are female is somewhat deceptive. This is on the next page. However, this rate varies significantly by religious family. With mainline Protestant congregation, c- congregations, female clergy account for 32% of the leadership compared to just 4% in evangelical tradition. None in Catholic or Orthodox, but 10% in other faith communities.
0: Yeah. I also find it interesting what they say next, which is that female leaders are also overrepresented in the smallest congregations and underrepresented in those with more than a hundred. <laughs> I kind of love this oh, yeah? a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So we can discount Catholics and Greek Orthodox because obviously they're not going to have females in leadership. That's yep. part of their theology. Mainline evangelicism obviously have massive issues with women in ministry. Okay, we can get that. We can not love it, but we can get it. And then you have, you have the statistic that we read before about how there are all of these tiny churches. Was it 70% of churches are tiny? Yeah, well, under 100. Under 100, okay. And then you have women stepping up in leadership in these tiny churches. So they may not be represented overall statistically, because you have these massive evangelical megachurches that most of them don't have a great system for involving women in ministry, mm. but all of these tiny churches, women are stepping up, which is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, and I've seen it. I mean, this just has to happen, right? If 50, 56%
0: of your attendees
1: are female compared to male, you've got a natural, like, naturally you've got more women, so it's more likely that women are going to be the ones to step up. Yeah. And I think I've seen it in like smaller congregations around. Often there's like the elders or whatever, like it can be yeah, a lot of women stepping up and doing it.
0: And even in our tradition, like I've seen this, I don't know if you agree or disagree with this, Josh, but I tend to see women pastors getting put in smaller congregations rather than larger congregations on the whole. Sydney may not be a very good indicator of that, but that's what I have observed. Yeah, I
1: don't know. I have to think about it.
0: Anyway, I I do think that's very interesting. Obviously, this is significant because most congregations have, on the whole, more women than they do have men. And it's interesting that you have these massive congregations where it's mostly men in leadership, yet mostly female in attendance or membership. Uh, And then you have these smaller congregations where you have more women stepping up in leadership.
1: One more little fun little bit of information from there that I found interesting. These leaders have a median tenure in the position of seven years.
0: Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Very biblical. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end they have a, Jubilee year and then the congregation lets them go. (laughs) You are free. (laughs) All the slaves have been released. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Look, do you want to talk about the age thing a little bit? I don't know. It's. Yes. I feel like at this point it's a foregone conclusion. And yet if we don't keep talking about it, I feel like it'll just go by the wayside and we won't, it'll just be like normal. And I don't feel like it should be normal.
1: On uh, one of the pages, it goes into that a little bit more in depth, right? So in 2020, it was 50, Median age was fifty-seven. In 2015, median age was fifty-eight. So you're like, yeah, wow, we're getting younger. But that's where the youth trend drops because oh, before <laughs> that, in 2000, the median age was fifty. Wow. So we are actually we're growing going up yeah. in age. Yeah. I guess it makes sense because our Congregations, I don't know if we mentioned this, but our congregations
0: are statistically older than the population. Okay, no, that's a good statistic that we should mention. Yeah. So nearly two thirds, 61% of religious leaders 65 years or older have a third or more of their members as senior participants, and 33% have half or more participants as seniors. So if a congregation – okay, so there's a correlative effect potentially here. If a congregation has both a leader, 65 or older, and a third or more of the participants as seniors, it's also more likely the religious community has an older founding date. So you have people in the church that – potentially were close to the date of the founding or mm-hmm. maybe they're children of the people who founded the church. So They tend to stay in their church. They tend to pick older leaders or leaders tend to age with them. And then they struggle to bring newer, younger blood into the the community as a result.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was interesting on the if you look at the page before that it shows the age congregational pastors doesn't parallel the U.S. population. Okay. So age, so the... I don't know how in depth it's going with this, but the U.S. population zero to f- zero in the zero to twelve age bracket is fifteen percent, and in churches it's fourteen percent. So okay. churches are just under the population, and then ages thirteen to seventeen, U.S. population is seven percent, churches nine percent. So we actually have more like thirteen to seventeen year olds in church than
0: yeah, which makes sense. You have parents bringing their kids to church. You have school kids going to churches because of the school. Yep, all that sort of thing. Yeah but then it changes a lot. 18 to 34, 23% of the
1: US population at 18 to 34, whereas only 14% of the church population
0: Mm.
1: is 18 to 34. 35 to 64, 38% of the US population and only 33% in church. But then you get to 65 and over. (laughs) It does a
0: complete
1: backflip. (laughs) 17% of the population are 65 and over and 33% of the congregations are 65 and over. Now... This is just. There's nothing wrong with like old people being in church. No, obviously, like it's great to have people of all ages in church, and it's not implying that older clergy are like inferior or anything. But like I think that. the
0: emphasis is on people of all ages. Yes, exactly.
1: We're missing some brackets there.
0: Not yeah. Paralleling, I think. This data does tell a story, and I think it's a story that most people are familiar with. When you are a child, your parents might bring you to church, or you might go to church for various reasons, whether it's through school or friends or whatever. Then as you get older, you go off to university. Maybe you lose contact with the church that you grew up in. Maybe you can't find a good church. Maybe you have a crisis of faith. Maybe get challenged in what you believe at university or whatever. And then- people tend to lose track, but then some people come back. So I think that 18 to 35 bracket where 14% are in church versus 23% of the population versus ages 35 to 64, you're seeing people come back to church after a while. Maybe they've had kids of their own and they want to give them a good experience, teach them moral lessons, all that sort of stuff. But then that doesn't Account, I think, in the story for the 65 and over. I think this is possibly the stalwarts, the always been in church people. And obviously, that is a, yeah, overrepresented group. I think the thing that most concerns me in all this is that age group of 65 and over. Have a, a limited shelf life, literally. I mean, that's one way to put it. Yeah. We're seeing, we're at the tail end of the boomer generation, and many of them are starting to pass away. They're getting older and they're going to retirement homes. Many of them are dying. And so, I guess my question is when Gen X's, which I would probably put into that older ages 35 to 64 bracket, when they come into that 65 and over bracket and we no longer have any boomers around or not that many, what are the stats going to look like? Are we going to see the millennial generation do the same thing that the Gen X's did? Are we going to see the Gen X's do the same thing that the boomers have done? Or is there going to be a, an emptying, I suppose, of that older generation in our churches?
1: Lots of key questions. And, and are we going to equip Younger generations to rise and lead and be a part, mm. stay a part of our churches. Like it's yeah, a lot of food for thought there. Do you mm. want these trends to continue or to change? And obviously, there are always going to be churches that do buck the trends and have different trajectory. This is just talking averages and medians and all that kind of sure. thing. It is not all despair, my friends. Ah, thank goodness. There is hope. Let's talk a little bit about the advantages and challenges for each congregation size level mm. because again, Please remember, every church of every size can have advantages and disadvantages. All right? There's not one magic style of church that does everything. Okay? Can we please just agree? Can
0: please <laughs> Can someone agree with me on this? Just once. Josh, I, I have always thought that the style of church that I like is the best. <laughs> it's the most biblical, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. So there, there are definitely pros and cons of each different church size. So remember what we said before that the smallest 70% of congregations are those with an attendance of a hundred or less. And I think the main thing that I am really encouraged by, and this makes total sense if you think about it, these small congregations tend to have a higher level of commitment from their members. Yeah. Bigger buy-in. You have to.
1: Yeah, who else is going to do it? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so it says in the data here, these faith communities had a greater percentage of member participation in weekly worship. Their participants gave more money per person and were more likely to volunteer. These congregations spent less on staffing costs and gave the highest percentage of their budget in support of missions and charity. Interesting.
0: There's obviously less infrastructure, less overheads, and I guess more of a tangible If I give my money, it goes to this thing. Yep. Yeah. And
1: I think the accountability too. There's there's only 50 people in the room. and (laughs) They're like, we need everybody to be a part of this. And it's just, hey, there's only 49 of us. Where's Barry? Where's Barry? (laughs) Someone call him up. You know what I mean? Like you can just tell.
0: It's names, you know, when people are missing, you know them. You know what's going on in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important. And I think this is... A
1: lot of Adventist churches are in this bracket. And this is the sort of style of church a lot of Adventists are used to. And like I said, there's strengths to it. There's actual, there's real beauty in these, like in, in just having that level of accountability in your
0: church. So, having said all that, there are definitely some challenges to these smaller congregations. According to the report, these churches tend to have more people over the age of 65 than larger congregations. So, these are aging communities. A third of the congregations have part-time leaders, so they may not be able to afford to pay their pastors. I believe I read, I didn't mention it before, 14% of church leadership are bivocational, so they have to have a job elsewhere. I can't remember exactly where I read the start. I think it was next to the, the big infographic. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I remember reading something about how a lot of them are also volunteer. Yeah, Maybe a similar, like 15 or 14%. But I think
0: think that definitely checks out. They were less likely than other sizes to affirm they were looking for new members. So some of them struggle with getting young people, children into their congregations. Some of them maybe feel like they're in a bit of a rut. So on the one hand, highly motivated, highly involved, but also potentially a little bit lost as far as next steps and getting different new people into their congregation.
1: I think this is the challenge when you are at like 40, 50 people and you all know each other. It can be hard to... It's like trying to break into a friend group. You're all friends. You all love each other, which is good. Um, but then there's this new f- person that moves in and maybe they're a little bit different. Changes the dynamic. Yeah, it does. And I don't think people do it intentionally. I think it might actually be a, even subconscious at times. But yeah. we just can... Churches of this size can actually struggle to properly incorporate new people into Yeah. What it means to be a part of their community. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's a challenging stat and I think it's definitely one that we can all resonate with. And I think the reality is a lot of people just like it the way it is. Yeah. You know? comfortable. It's super comfortable. You see the same faces every week. You have the same kind of conversations. It's nice and cozy. So there's challenges there, but that's not the only group that they talked about. So the, there's medium-sized congregations as well. There are 100 to 250 regular attendees. Which to us is often a large congregation. Yeah. <laughs> you <know>, oh, man. <laughs> how much bigger can you get, mate? Oh, golly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they constitute 21% of the survey. And I think from... That there, that's the smallest represented group. I think for many American churches, that size is like the, uh, it's the pivot size. It's like, Mm -hmm. we're no longer a smaller congregation and we may have ambitions to become a larger congregation. And this is where we are for now until we can become a larger congregation. Yeah. Or maybe we intended to become large, but we got stuck there. So I think, yeah, this is a smaller, this is a smaller group of people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we forgot to
1: mention something with smaller churches. They actually have the highest budget expense per capita. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So faith communities of the small size have serious organizational stresses, including the high, highest budget expense per capita, the largest percentage of their budget gets spent on buildings, and mm. the largest percentage of members over the age of 65, and the smallest percentage of children, youth, and young adults.
0: Okay. I guess that makes sense. If you've got a church that may have been established 1950s something like that. Maybe at one time it was massive. Yeah. And it was probably built with a lot of different building standards than yeah. you had the stress when you were in New Zealand the church that you were part of in Palmerston North had enormous struggles with paying bills and insurance and repairs uh, and all that sort of stuff.
1: Rising insurance rates, especially in New Zealand with earthquakes and all that kind of thing. It just became almost unsustainable to have a building. You know, you have to have a lot of people to really justify having a building just because of the percentage of your budget that has to go to just ensuring it and making sure it gets like
0: the upkeep and if something breaks, repairing it. This was a building that was in part built by the members. Oh yeah, like they could all be like, oh yeah,
1: this brick was laid by my... This wood was from this person's farm. It was really cool stories. I loved hearing sort of the history of it,
0: but it was pretty... I remember when the bills came in, I was like, oh my gosh, how are we going to yeah. make this work? So, yeah. the smaller a congregation gets, the more stressful it becomes to maintain those sorts of things.
1: Yeah. And so, it's, and it, they're actually more expensive to run.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty interesting. I think we don't often think about that well, think statistically. At, think about a place like New Zealand. It gets really cold in winter. And if you have just a few people, you have to be able to heat the place. And there's, that's just one thing of many things that yeah. you have to think about.
1: Well, even, even if you do pay, like in our system, often a pastor will be paid to look after. You might get like two, maybe three. Sometimes you get like four or five congregations and they might all be like 20, 30, maybe 40 yep. people. Manageable. Yeah, it is. But like when you think about how much you're paying in petrol to drive around to all these places, how much you're getting paid, like how many people you are actually looking after. Like sometimes you'll have... So I know some pastors who've had five congregations of yeah. like 15 people. And then imagine what it's and like... Not, not saying that these people don't matter, but it's yeah. like 80 people is one person's full wage. Whereas at a church of 150, it's one person's full wage and they're all in one place. Yeah. there's Expenses a st- can be lower. There's a stewardship
0: question that has to be considered there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, how do we what's the best way we can look after these congregations of people and help them thrive yeah. spiritually and yeah, in their own way. Um, yeah. That doesn't like obviously, like I said, all congregations matter and all these people's spiritual journeys are important. We need to look after them. But mm. what's the most effective way to do it?
0: And then consider you take it out of an Adventist context and the congregation has to pay their pastor. Yeah. That's why many of them have to be bivocational or yeah. volunteer.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if Adventists were included in this survey. I'm actually not sure if this data represents our denomination, but I think we can translate some of this information to us just to make sense of it.
0: Certainly. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, let's go back to medium-sized. Medium-sized churches, their most striking characteristic is their openness to inviting other groups of all sorts to use their buildings. And I think this definitely checks out. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've seen this too. It's really cool. Yeah. So these communities were the most likely to offer space to other congregations and along with the 250 to 500 size congregations were more, more likely to open their building for use by nonprofits support groups, daycares, or government entities. So... I think there's a recognition of the space that they have and the asset that they're probably, for many churches, their most useful asset is the space, Mm. the building itself, the property and leveraging that. I think when you're trying to grow your congregation definitely is an important consideration to make. Yep. They tend to do better financially as well. And I will actually just make a quick note here. Josh and I have made a conscious decision not to talk about finances and giving too much. We just don't feel like it's a an enormously helpful addition to this particular conversation. Yes, but there is lots of data about it in this survey. You're yeah. welcome to check it out. Enjoy. Okay, so they do have some challenges though. So these mid-sized congregations, um, many of them are in decline. And I think this is probably a an indication of what I was mentioning before. Being that the 100 to 250 size congregation, they're a pivot congregation. Maybe they had a visionary leader who wanted to grow their church. And so it grew, or maybe it just grew naturally. But I have heard, and take this with a grain of salt, the church growth gurus do tend to say that getting past that sort of 200, 250, that's like the hardest ceiling to get past.
1: Because it requires a different pastoral model. You can't, once you get past 200, you can't pastor everyone. You have to team structure to grow up past that point. Yeah. which I think I've seen. I think that's true.
0: Yeah, but. I mean, your church is in this in this ballpark, Josh. Yeah, we got. Yeah, we're about. Yeah, we're about two hundred. But then your, I don't, I don't know. We don't have to talk about your church, but I think that one of the big challenges that you guys have is just the physical size of your space. Like, you can't yeah. fit that many more people into the congregation if you wanted to.
1: Yeah, we're like, even just car park. Yeah. It's like, where else do people park? I, I can so, attest to this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there are lots of complications because you start have to, I think, like we've been just talking about what would it look like for us to grow. And again, I don't want to go into too much detail about my own church, but just like that is, oh, you have to actually think about where do more people go? Yeah. Like it's actually hard to find spaces for more than 200 people especially in Sydney, yep. you
0: know, real estate and everything. But. And I think one of the things that you do also find challenging with this size of church, and maybe this is mentioned in the data, maybe it's not, I'm just going to say it anyway, is that you've gotten to a point where you don't know everybody, but you feel like you know most of everybody. Yeah. And so if a new person comes to your church, you may not necessarily notice it. If you have less than 100 people there, it's pretty hard to hide.
1: Yeah. Well, I think once you get past like even 150, I think like the main thing is not that you know everybody, but that you have systems in place that everybody is known. Yes.
0: Yes. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about that pivot point. If you can get to a point in your church where you move your model to a more team situation, then you actually have to start implementing them so that people don't get lost in the crowd. But I think at that 150 to 200 or even the one to 250, whatever the metric is, it's easy to feel like we don't need to do that necessarily. You might feel like, oh, we need to start a small group system or we might need to do this or that, but it's easy to not do it. So congregations above 250 attendees make up 10% of all churches.
1: Sorry, yeah.
0: thanks. (laughs) (laughs) thanks. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> but um, as we mentioned before, they draw the most people. Yeah. 60%. This
1: is 60%. The other one said 70%. So now I'm confused. But anyway.
0: Yeah. All right. Somewhere, let's just say somewhere in that bracket. Sure. Advantages
1: of big congregations. I think we, we probably know a lot of these. Yeah. But increased size and fullness of the sanctuary. It's so. <laughs> I always find it strange when churches are called sanctuaries. But anyway, I get work. Anyway, that's another conversation. <laughs> and greater annual income and expenditures. Other traits are also related to larger number of participants. Other less overt qualities, such as desire for greater diversity of the membership, a greater willingness to change, a clearer sense of mission and purpose, and a greater sense of spiritual vitality contribute greatly to the flourishing of a religious community. Having that clearer sense of mission and vision and purpose and having your established building, everything looking full. Like, of course, people are going to feel like, yeah, we're killing it. Look at us
0: go. Yeah. It just creates a good vibe. It does, but I also think that in the midst of it, you can tend to lose track of what is truly important when it comes to church congregations. We've already mentioned the fact that a lot of these churches tend to draw in other Christians, as in other churches suffer because of these large congregations. And I'm not going to say that's the overall trend of what happens every time, but I do remember reading a study a year or two ago about how church growth gurus and the whole church growth movement, what it tended to do was just shuffle deck chairs around in greater mm. Christianity rather than truly attracting new Christians, as yeah. in people who were not of faith coming to faith because of these seeker-sensitive churches. And this is no criticism of any particular church, but it is perhaps a just a concern that I've had of r- whether these big churches on the whole are good for christians and non-christians mm. or whether they're good for themselves yeah well
1: i mean and maybe i am being a bit too optimistic here but is it a bad thing like to gather christians from like other churches and put them all in one place and give them more of a clear mission and Because they're not going to leave their church if they feel like they're in a spiritually vital place or a place with spiritual vitality. Yeah, right. They're not going to leave if they don't feel that, right? Yeah. I assume. And so I don't even know if it's necessarily bad. Because again, if you keep reading, it says that these churches are likely to have increased use of technology, greater percentage of participants engaged in recruitment, and a great number of wider variety programs of their members and for the community at large. And... A greater percentage of congregations over 250 are actively involved in community services and engaged in both ecumen- ecumenical and interfaith worship, which maybe is how they're recruiting others if they're more involved mm. in it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, 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 uh, fellowship yeah, yeah. and community service activities. So I'm like thinking if it's more, if it's getting people more involved in the community and creating more resources and opportunities for people to be engaged in their church, is it a bad thing?
0: I don't know. Like, I'm not, I'm just, yeah. I'm questioning. It. Look, I'm talking in vague terms because I'm not talking about any church in particular. Same, yep, yep. I just know of churches that have done shady things and they tend to be the bigger ones. But
1: Sure, of course,
0: yeah. But I get your point. I do get your point. I don't think that it's an either or. I think it's probably more likely it's a yes and. Churches can be really good for people and as in big churches. But I think there's also potential concerns that bigger churches don't have as much I want to say accountability that's true yep when you're at that level you don't have a hundred people going we see exactly what you're doing why are you doing this we disagree with you Mm. much easier to hide behind the layers of your leadership and your team and your executive pastors and your blah 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 these other things
1: and I would say that's why it can take so long for when a particular leader does something wrong it can take a while for it to actually surface yeah and maybe that's a, maybe it's good to, that takes a while to surface because it can mean there's more time to process it and make sure make sure hundred percent what it's not just an accusation or something. Yeah. But again, maybe that's maybe, maybe. too optimistic, but <laughs> <laughs> but look, big churches don't have it all. They're not hundred percent great, as we've already talked about. It is also true that larger congregation gets, the faster it grows. The greater the decline in per capita giving. Okay. So the giving. So again, there's an accountability. Like the giving per person drops. Yeah. Growth and large size also correlate to smaller percentages of the congregation willing to volunteer and a lower overall participant commitment generally, which makes sense. Once you get over two hundred and fifty people, like how many people can you have involved in a worship service or whatever? Totally. While larger congregations had lower per capita costs to operate. Larger percentages of their budget went to staff costs and program expenses. So smaller churches, more budget goes to the building. Larger churches, more pu- more budget goes to staff costs and program expenses. Yeah. No. Pretty interesting.
0: Very interesting. And look, I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything that we want to cover in just one episode. No. So I think what we're going to do is move on to a part two So we will do a second part where we focus not on the stuff that is challenging, but the trends that offer hope. We're excited to talk about that next time.
1: Uh, And we'd love to hear feedback on what we've shared already. For now, that is Josh and Jesse out.